This morning, in the aim of knowing the risen Christ, I want to invite you to turn first in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28, if you haven't already. And this morning, we'll be examining again verses 16 through 20. I did not complete uh, my sermon last Sunday, so this morning I'm finishing. I'm actually, uh, you won't be surprised, expanding um, that message. But in order to help us to orient us to Matthew chapter 28, I want again to turn to Daniel chapter 7. So keep your finger in Matthew chapter 28, and then if you would like to turn to Daniel chapter 7, this is a really key Old Testament background to the appearance of Christ to his disciples. And it helps us this morning remember just who it is that we're talking about. In Daniel chapter 7, I want to begin actually in verse 9. I always, it's just hard to read a portion of this passage. So let's read together. I'm going to read, uh, rather I will read verses 9 through 14. And then we'll turn to Matthew 28. There Daniel, the prophet and servant of God, is speaking. And he says, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and his... Hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The courts sat, and the books were opened. The courts sat, and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. And as for the rest of the beasts, these antichrist figures, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking, says Daniel, in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And then turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, verse 16. Jesus is risen from the dead. He had commanded his disciples to meet him in Galilee, where he was from, where he had taught so many. And there Jesus met his disciples, in particular here speaking of the eleven And here we read, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some were doubtful. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Let's pause briefly and pray and ask for God's help to understand. So God, we do stop and pause and We ask you to help us. For many of us here who have known Jesus for many years, these are very familiar words, and rightly so. But so often in your word, where there are words that we are familiar with, our hearts become dull to those words. So please, in your mercy, take away the dullness where there's callousness that's been built up in our hearts. Take that away and give understanding. God, have mercy upon us, and Lord Jesus, have mercy upon us, this church, that we may be a church by your grace after your own heart, that we may keep your words, we may make disciples. So to that end, help us now, we ask in your name. Amen. It is difficult for us just to jump in here into Matthew chapter 28 verse 16. It's hard for us on a Sunday morning when the rain is falling and we had spring chores where maybe we're working on yesterday and it's a somewhat busy time of year here in New Hampshire as we come out of hibernation and uh, tend to all the things we need to before the snow starts falling again. And um, so it's a little challenging for us to just kind of come in and all of a sudden come to this scene where Jesus is risen from the dead and his disciples are prostrate on the ground before him worshiping him and it's difficult but nonetheless we have to go here we have to bring ourselves this morning before the glorious and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and he is none other than this glorious son of man that David rather that Daniel saw in his vision This is who we're talking about here. Oh yes, he is Jesus. He is the man that's from Nazareth. He's the guy that if you'd seen him when he lived on this earth, you wouldn't have necessarily looked at him and said, wow, there goes the incarnate son of God. He was, uh, in many respects, an average man, a, a Jewish man, but he was no normal man. True man, yes but the very Son of God and the promised Messiah. Messiah means anointed one. That is what would happen to the kings of old. David, when he was told that he would be the next king of Israel, he was anointed by Samuel. Jesus is the ultimate anointed one. He is the ultimate Messiah. Christ means Messiah in Greek. He is the Christ, the Messiah. And he is, as prophesied in Scripture, the one who came, who lived a life of obedience to the law of God that you and I could never live. You're here this morning, and I don't know all of you, but I've got some tough news for you. You're not naturally right with God. You're not naturally good. You may not be bad as the next guy or the next gal, but you and I have sinned against God, every single one of us. We have not loved God as we should. We have not loved others as we should. 
What one of us has loved God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And some of us want to say real quickly, well, of course none of us have because we're only human. Church congregation here knows pretty well that I'm not too keen on that phrase. Because remember, God created humanity, and when God created humanity, he didn't create something that was marred. He created Adam and Eve perfect in his image. It was Adam and Eve who decided intentionally to spurn God, who in their own hearts became lifted up and started to think that they could become gods, and every single one of us has done the same. We can't blame it on Adam and Eve saying, well, boy, I got a raw deal. What one of us hasn't thought more highly of ourselves than we should? What one of us hasn't been self-centered, self-oriented? What one of us hasn't opened up our mouths with a cutting word to tear somebody else down? All of us have sinned. And so we're in a bad way. We've got news that's bad for you at the beginning of this sermon. Every single one of us is headed for the judgment of God. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what family you come from, doesn't matter if you go to a church, doesn't matter if you listen to Christian music. Every single one of us is headed to stand before our Creator, our Maker, our King, and our Lawgiver, and to give an account for deeds done in the body. And it's not like our good deeds somehow make up for our bad deeds. Because we have sinned against God, and God is perfectly righteous, perfectly just. There must be an accounting, a reckoning for our sins against God. And they are big deals because our sins are not against ourselves. Our sins are against him. And he is glorious and he is good. And our sins are against other men and women made in his image. And that's why the penalty for sin is death, judgment, and ultimately hell. Yes, hell. And we have learned through the teaching of the Lord Jesus in Matthew that hell is not a quick moment. Hell is an eternal experience of receiving in your resurrected body the just judgment of God. Not for somebody else's sin, but for your sin. Well, that's an encouraging note on this rainy, rainy April morning. Well, I'm not stopping there. Thankfully, the Bible doesn't stop there. God, who judges sinners and who will judge sinners apart from Christ, is also the same God who loves sinners like you and me. And God determined before the creation of the world that he would send his only unique beloved son into this world as a man to live a life of obedience that you and I cannot live, have never lived, to live a righteous life, and that in his death and in his sufferings, that on the cross, that Jesus, the Son of God incarnate in flesh, would receive in himself in a few hours on the cross the full, unmitigated justice and wrath of God do you and me sinners in our sin and Jesus has done that we took several Sundays we took a good Friday evening to meditate upon the sufferings of Jesus 
He didn't just die on a Roman's cross. Thousands and thousands of people died on Roman's crosses. There were sections of the Roman Empire where you could go mile after mile after mile and see crosses with the enemies of Rome hanging on them, being picked away at by birds, announcing to everybody, this is what happens if you mess with Rome. Crucifixions were common. This death, though, was no common death. This was a crucifixion, untold physical suffering. But the mystery of the cross is that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, was able, because of who he uniquely is, to receive in himself the full justice and penalty and wages of our sin. So that he was able to cry, it is finished. And when he cried, it is finished, it meant that he had actually paid the price. He had actually experienced in his holy person the fullness of the justice of God. And he breathed his last. He laid down his life. And when he died, he conquered death. He didn't give in to death. He wasn't defeated. He took our sin to the grave with him and kicked death in the teeth. And he conquered over death. And then he rose from death, from from the dead. And that's who we're meeting here in Matthew 28. But I want to start right at the beginning of this message. Do you know this resurrected Christ who is crucified for your sins? Because you must. He is your creator. He is your king. Some of you are kind of, well, deciding about that. You're, well, that's good. You've got to think about it. You've got to know certain things about Jesus and about God. But you do not know when you will breathe your last. And you will stand before your maker to give an account for your life and for your deeds. And the gospel offer, listen, the good news, that's what gospel means. It's not like a sales pitch. It's not like God's coming along out of all the goods in life and you know you got all the different ways you can live your life and you got this style and that style and God's coming along and saying, "Well, yeah, you ought to, you know, consider my son. He's pretty good." No, God is commanding you to bow and to repent and to receive and trust in his son for your own sake, for your own life, and also for the glory of his son. You're a sinner, right? I am. You know there's a God, right? There is. You you cannot look at this world. You cannot look at spring and what happens in spring. You cannot look at the complexity of, of human life, of a little baby, for example, and say, wow, yeah, that just sprung out of some primordial mud. Sure, okay. There's a creator And he gave to you a heart that knows the difference between right and wrong. And he's calling for you to trust in his son. Don't be among those who are doubtful. Believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ today. Today. Believe in him today. Believe in him today. Trust in him today. Right now. In your heart, where you are. What do I got to do? Some of you are maybe thinking, what, what do I have to do? What does God want? God wants you to tell the truth. That's what he wants. He wants you in your heart to tell the truth to yourself and to him about who he is, about who you are, and about who his son is. And then you in your heart, just what we just sang, that song we just sang, Oh God, be merciful to me. I am a sinner through and through. My only hope of righteousness is is Jesus Christ.
and Christ alone. Don't put it off. Trust in Jesus today. I know we need to move forward in the sermon, but I just, I'm just so, I think of a man I knew years ago who was not that old, in his late 50s, maybe early 60s. For years, he would come to church around Easter time. He'd come once in a while. Oh, yeah, this is good. I believe God is God. I, I know yeah, I should probably consider this stuff. And then, and I'm not saying this to scare anybody. I'm just telling you the truth. Then one day I did his funeral because he had been changing his oil and the car fell on him. And that was it. God gave him multiple opportunities, and he didn't know the day would come, and you do not know the day. It's coming. That's not a scare tactic. That's just fact. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Jesus Christ right now. This is who we're coming to, is our Savior and our King. He's not a good, necessarily moral teacher. He is moral, perfectly so. He doesn't have some suggestions for how you can live a happy life he is your king he's my king he's our king he's the son of God he's the conqueror over sin and death praise God he died on the cross for our sins and now he's appearing to his disciples and he comes to them and they worship him quickly here I just want to review a briefly the, the observations we started with last Sunday. Jesus is to be worshipped as Christ. That's what God wants, and that's what he's worthy of with God. This worship means he is to be reverenced in, in pictures of, or archaeological uh, carvings and so forth. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament, Most often when people thought of worship, you would see a figure, a person, prostrate on the ground. So this is tough for us as Americans because, you know, we stand tall and proud. And that's good in some contexts. But we are so independent. We are so, I got this, I'm standing firm, that we may not know how to bow. You got to learn how to bow. And worship really is prostrate. doesn't mean that on Sunday mornings, we all have to get level on the floor. But in private, that might be a bad thing for some of us. Some of you are saying, well, I can't get up. I'll need some help. Well, maybe you can ask somebody to help you. But it might not be a bad thing for those of us who have never bowed our face to the ground before our maker. This is our maker, our king. They're bowing. They're laid low. They're on the ground there on the mountain of Galilee. And this is the worship that we are to offer to Jesus. And he says to them, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's where that scene from Daniel 7 is so helpful because here we have God the Father, the Ancient of Days, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels. And the Son of Man comes right up to the throne and to him is given a kingdom, a dominion. You want to align yourself with this king because this is the deal. This is the way it is. Your little life or my little life, your little kingdom is not going to compete with this kingdom. It's God's determination to give the kingdom, the rule, the authority in all of heaven and all of earth to his son. And upon his death and upon his resurrection, Jesus has received the title deed to the authority of heaven and earth. And let me ask you, do you happen to be breathing in this universe? Yes? Are are your feet standing 
Now, are this morning, are you sitting on a little globe called Earth revolving in one of the galaxies in this vast universe? And the answer is, of course, is yes. Well, then you're in his territory. Jesus Christ is the king over all, heaven and earth. And he commands his disciples then, thirdly, to go, verse 19, and make disciples of all nations. We emphasize here the all nations because there again in Daniel chapter 7, you saw the emphasis that God is not content to give his son to be merely king, for example, over Israel or one nation or a couple nations. As the hymn says, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. The sun covers the whole globe. The light of the sun shines everywhere and Jesus will be king everywhere. We are to go and to make disciples. A disciple is a student, a learner. It's someone who's learning about Jesus. So important that as we profess faith in Jesus Christ, which I hope you have, and I hope there's some of you maybe this morning, right now in this service, who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the first time, welcome to discipleship. Join the rest of the class. You're never done learning. We're all growing here. Or maybe I should ask, are we? Maybe some of us professed Jesus Christ many, many years ago, and we've come to a place where we've just determined in our minds, well, this is just who I am. This is just my personality. It's just my family, just my circumstances. And somehow over time, there have accumulated these other authorities in our lives that give us permission that Jesus has not. It's good for us to remember this morning that a disciple is a learner, is teachable. Are we teachable? Let me ask you this morning, asking myself, am I still teachable? Are you still teachable? No matter how long I've known Jesus, are there still things for God to teach me in his word? Of course there are. But, but I'm, am, I really, am I really willing to change? That's what we're getting at when we say teachable. You know how frustrating it is maybe uh, in school or in your line of work and you'd like to train somebody else, but it becomes clear maybe at some point along the line that their training will only go so far because they'll receive your instruction to a certain point, but the way that they've done it is the way they've always done it is the way that they are determined to do it. They will not countenance the idea of actually changing. But a disciple is one who's willing to change. And to constantly learn what is it, God, that you want? What is pleasing to you? And in discipling, notice that we are, that the apostles initially here, that they were to baptize. That the church is to baptize. And that does mean, yes, to dunk. And I'm very excited that we have several individuals in our church right now who are expressed interest in baptism. And uh, trust that will happen soon. Um, so thankful for what God's doing. But this was a public identifying with. To be baptized was not a private ceremony, but often a public ceremony where you were publicly recognizing and identifying with a certain God. And in this case, Jesus makes clear in verse 19 that the God of the Bible is a Trinitarian God. One God, three persons. And so we asked ourselves last Sunday, are we a people of, with a Trinitarian devotion? We worship the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Notice in verse 
uh, 19, that name there is singular. One God. But there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But now we come this morning to verse 20. And we want to spend most of our time here on this phrase. Jesus says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Our two remaining points are contained here in verse 20. We're going to focus on the fact that Jesus teaches that we are to observe all that he's commanded us. And we'll close with considering that he is with us always. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. I want to remind you that here the apostles are the immediate recipients of these verses. They absolutely have practical application for all of us. Every believer in Jesus Christ is to be thinking about how can I share this good news about Jesus with others? And how can I come alongside and disciple and train up others? It's not only the job of the pastor or elders. All of us, if we're a believer, have someone that we can share Jesus with and that we can begin helping others grow to unknow and mature. All of us are to be disciple makers. But there is an apostolic emphasis here that's often missed. Apostolic, big word, apostles. Meaning, just simply noting that these 11 initially, these are the apostles. And apostle means official ambassador. It means that they are official ambassadors of the king. The apostles at the beginning of the church had a unique authority. They had a unique role. When we go to the book of Acts a little bit later, we don't need to turn there right now, but we find that it is the apostles like Peter or James who are the ones who are publicly teaching and preaching. Not all of us are called to be teachers publicly. In fact, in the New Testament, we are told, let not many of you, of us, become teachers, brethren. Teachers are a gift to the church by Christ. He gifts some to be pastor teachers, and some have the gift of teaching. But just pausing here to note that he's really giving marching orders initially to these apostles. And as the apostles are the founders of the church, this is the mission given to the church of Christ. In other words, the church of Jesus Christ, which is comprised of churches like ours and every other place where the word of God is honored and the gospel taught truly. But true churches are to be teaching churches. This is why so much of what we do here at Reformation Bible Church is open up the Bible, read it, and then teach it. We teach it Sunday school. We teach it Sunday morning. We teach it Sunday evenings. We, I have a whole other sermon on Sunday evenings. Usually, if I'm in the New Testament in the morning, I'm preaching in the Old Testament in the evening. Why? Why so much teaching? And then we have Tuesday nights, and right now Thursday nights for ladies, and a whole lot of teaching going on. Well, behind it is this command, teaching, teaching to observe. Teaching means to read the Bible, explain the Bible, and then exhort with the Bible. 
And why do we have so many teaching opportunities? In part, because I know you've noticed this, but this is kind of a big book. Even if your Bible's smaller than mine, and mine's a little bigger because these days uh, I need the font to be a little larger. Um, <laughs> yeah, some of you know what I'm talking about. Um, but no matter how, how compact a Bible you have, it's a big book. It could have been a lot bigger. I mean, God did an amazing job in the span of one book in covering from creation all the way to the end of the age and the, the story of redemption. But it's, it's, it's a big book. God went to a lot of effort through various prophets to, and by his spirit to record for us the scriptures. I won't say all the books of the Bible, but some of you know them, and you've got Genesis, and then you've got different, you've got narrative, and you've got wisdom like Proverbs or Ecclesiastes. You've got Psalms, which are songs of prayer or worship. You have the history of Israel, which, which why is that important? Because that's the story of God's faithfulness to his people. And you have the Gospels, four different accounts of the life, ministry, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have the book of Acts, which is the story of the founding of the church. And then you have the New Testament letters, which are written to usually local churches that need encouragement or correction. It's a, it's a big book. Jesus has given to us a lot, not more than we can handle, but he's given to us his word, and we are to teach that word. Notice the scope. I'll get to a a moment to the word observe, but fast forward to the end of that phrase, all that I commanded you, all, all that I commanded you, not some, not the parts that you like, not the parts that you think apply to your life. The church today, and I mean the church at large, and this is not new, but it's, it is rampant in our day. The, the church, and I mean the evangelical church even, largely thinks of itself, churches largely think of themselves as spiritual Walmarts. I mean nothing against Walmart. I need to come up with a better phrase. Um, I, I like Walmart. I go to Walmart. But uh, spiritual um, boutiques. Churches think of themselves as offering spiritual product. So people are hurting. We know that. We're all hurting in different ways at different times. And that's true. Life under the sun is really, really hard. And people don't want to feel pain and people want hope and rightly so. And that's all good. And so the church in our day tends to think like businesses and think What can we offer to the spiritual consumer so more of them will come and and fill our seats and, and, and make our church successful? The problem with that is that if you think of yourself along that model, you are not going to teach them to observe all that Jesus commanded because the spiritual consumer out there today isn't too cool with the all. Some, good. That works. Some of it's good. I mean, who 
Most people, I would say, I was going to say who, but it's probably some. Most people acknowledge that Jesus had some good things to say. Go out even here in Concord, New Hampshire, uh, capital of the most secular state in the United States, and ask someone on the street, do you think Jesus had some good things to say? Yeah, yeah, I, I think Jesus probably was a good teacher. You know, he often said, you know, love your neighbor. That's good, yeah. Do you think all of what Jesus said was good? Well, first of all, the person probably doesn't know, but once they learn it, no. <laughs> no, I think he had some things to say that were, that were really inappropriate. That business about hell and, and adultery and all that, no, no, that's not good. That's out in the world, but even in the church, we have some churches I don't mean some among many. I mean that's maybe a description. They are churches that are some, S-O-M-E, churches. They don't come out and say it, but the truth is in their commitment. They are committed to avoiding those things that might offend the spiritual consumer. And so you have some churches producing some Christians. You know what a some Christian is? Some Christian is a Christian who wants to believe in Jesus and wants to do some of what he has commanded. And unfortunately, we know this right now, unfortunately, we can't necessarily say that idea is somewhere out there or it's only in California. It's in here. My sinful nature... I'm tempted to be a some Christian. And to some extent, before God, God is judge. God forbid, but I may be right now practicing some of what Jesus has commanded. This is our tendency. But I want you to notice the scope. Teaching them to observe not some, not most, all that I commanded you. This is really where the issue is in churches and among Christians. And yes, among conservative churches and conservative Christians. We can content ourselves with having sound doctrine in a lengthy doctrinal statement like we do. And I'm so thankful for that. I wouldn't trade that for the world. But we can somehow content ourselves with, well, there you go. No, We are to be learning what God has revealed in his word and what Jesus has taught. And Jesus, what Jesus has commanded, it certainly includes, you know, what he commanded in the Gospels. For example, the Sermon on the Mount. How are we doing in observing that? How are we doing in observing what Jesus taught in the Gospel about forgiving others? as our Father in heaven has forgiven us? How are we doing with humbling ourselves, praying? That's just the Gospels. And then we go beyond that to the rest of the Bible. Why? Because if Jesus is, in fact, who he is, the Son of God, he is the author not only of the words that are in red in some of your Bibles in the Gospels, He is, in fact, the author of the entire book. And the New Testament letters, in particular, were given, most of them, by his apostles. They are sent by him. And so, certainly, the New Testament letters are his commandments. 
How are we doing? Are we a some church or are we an all church? Are we some Christians or are we all Christians? It's very, very serious. Because they're really not options. It's not like God is content or Jesus is content with a church that just wants to observe most of what he commanded. I think today we, we, we are so aware of the authority and the influence of the almighty consumer in our culture, right? Businesses collapse. If the people don't want to buy your product, business collapse, doors close, store folds. And so in our particularly American culture, we maybe don't say it out loud, but we tend to think, well, if the church insists upon teaching that we observe all that Jesus commanded, it's going to fold. It's going to close because, I mean, people just aren't going to buy that. People aren't going to go to that. And I want you to notice what the risen, resurrected King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the implications of what he's saying here, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. It is so strong that you understand Jesus would rather have the churches close. Let the store close. Let it fold. The king does not bow to the so-called almighty consumer. He's king of kings, lord of lords. It's so hard for us to remember this because we're so used. I mean, we, all of us, in this culture, at this time, where we go, we have the sway. We have the influence. After all, aren't you so sick and tired of every single business, sorry if you're a business owner, sending an email asking for your feedback? Oh, if I get another email. I mean, I feel like, I, I don't know, if I go to McDonald's, I, I, if I even go through the door, somehow they know I was there. I haven't been there recently. But if they go there and I get an email and I get a text saying, we would like an ex, you know, feedback on your recent experience. How was the love? I mean, if I responded to all the different requests that I get for feedback, I'd be spending half my day doing it, right? Do you know what I'm talking about? So what that does is that reinforces this idea, I'm Lord, I'm King, I get to determine what the experience is, what I want, and it's so hard to come to terms with the fact That you are not Lord and you are not King, only Jesus is. I am not, only Jesus is. That I am his servant, I am his slave. Do I think of myself firstly as a consumer? Or do I think of myself as a servant, as a slave, as an unworthy, purchased, bought, redeemed son or daughter of the living God? Who has the real purchase power in my life? Do I have it? Or does God have it by way of his purchasing me with the blood of his son? Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. It's not an option to pick here and there what we want to obey about Jesus, his teachings. 
Teach them to observe. Now, the word observe, notice, that's kind of, in us, to us, kind of weak. Many of your English translations have observe. Some have obey, and that's good. Observe's not bad. The, the Greek word does mean observe or obey, but it also means to keep. And a new translation that I've been enjoying, some of you have a legacy standard that has keep. I think that's helpful because keep includes observe. It, but observe, if someone reading that firsthand, you could think, well, yeah, I'm going to learn Jesus' teachings and I'm going to observe them. I'm going to think about them. I observed it. No, that, that's not what observe means. It means do. Do. <laughs> if you have a little child and you're the parent and you told so-and-so little boy or little girl to clean his or her room and, and you go back in about 10 minutes, 15 minutes later and they're just sitting there amidst the, the mayhem and the mess of the room and, and you say, oh, little so-and-so, what, what are you doing? I, I'm, I'm observing what you said. <laughs> I'm thinking about it. I'm, I'm mulling over how I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm observing it. At least that's how I think of observe. It, it it's, doesn't necessarily translate do it, but that's what it means here. Do all that I've commanded you. Obey it, but keep goes even beyond obey, doesn't it? Keep includes obey, so I need to do what Jesus has commanded me. But to keep it goes beyond obey, and it means Cherish, hold as precious, preserve, guard, love, keep what I have commanded you. The church cannot, should not have an uncomfortable relationship with the words of Christ. What I mean by that is we should not be thinking of some part of the teaching of the word of God as well you know we know it's in there but we don't really focus on that too much perish the thought we keep all of it we keep the word we love it even when it rebukes us even when it corrects us even when we are brought low especially when we are brought low We love the word of God. We must, and we must keep it. We must cherish it. We must guard it. Constantly, Satan in this world, and even those who influence the church, and even our own treacherous affections, start chipping away at various parts of the word. So that at the end of the day, some of us, practically speaking, even though we have still the whole Bible before us, our Bibles, practically speaking, are a little bit like Thomas Jefferson's Bible. You know his Bible? He was a classic Enlightenment figure who looked at the Word of God and cut, literally, with scissors, cut out of his Bible all that did not meet with his approval. The miracles, the resurrection of Christ, anything that didn't jive with his view of science, he literally cut out of his Bible. That's the Jefferson Bible. We don't want to do that physically, but we don't want to do that effectively cutting out of our Bibles what God has given. Teaching them to observe, to keep, to obey all that I commanded you. And do you understand that this is a bit of the the awkwardness of of what's happening right now? Um, What I mean is, in biblical churches, there's 
usually a guy standing up and he's a sinner and everybody knows that, especially his family, and he's just one another, the redeemed. There's nothing special about him, but he's given a certain role and his role is to read the word and then to explain it and then to exhort with it. And the awkwardness that I'm referring to is my job and the job of every faithful pastor teacher is not merely to explain it to you, it's to exhort you do it like there's actually authority like you got to stop what you're doing that's not pleasing to Jesus I mean where do you go in a store that tells you to do that unless you pay them <laughs> like you pay for weight loss you're, you're paying them all right you got to tell me stop eating you know be <laughs> we pay people to be mean to us right but but that's not going on here where this is very unique that you come to a place where you intentionally go to a place and you ask God by his spirit through his word and whoever is teaching to correct, to rebuke, to train. Why is that so? Because of the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because of the preacher himself. It's the Christ and his word. And to the extent that Jesus' word, the word of God, is read and explained accurately, and we are told what we need to do. Listen, we are under the authority of the word, and we don't need to just think about it. We need to do it, submit to it, confess where we are wrong, and actually determine before God by his grace and reliance upon him, we're going to change. Because Jesus is king, not me. Observe all that I commanded you. Jesus in John 14 said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. If we're not keeping the word of Jesus, if we're not keeping the word of God, if we don't really intend to, no matter what we say about our faith in Jesus, at the end of the day, what it really means is we don't love him. We don't love the one who lived for us and died for us. We don't love him. If we love him, Jesus says, we will keep his word. Not perfectly. He knows that. He provided for that. First John is very clear. None of us, even we who are professing believers, earnestly keeps his word perfectly. But we strive to. We maintain a position of, oh God, show me where I'm wrong. Show me where I need to change. Command me as you will. This is how we know whether we're loving Jesus or not. Are we a some church or an all church? Are we some Christians or all Christians? It is possible to be a church that pleases the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have time. We need to close. But in Revelation chapter 3, it's interesting that Jesus praises the church in Philadelphia because, quote, you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
it's possible. Well, sixthly and finally, as we consider these words of our Lord, we come now in closing to his wonderful words, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And, and it starts with a low or a behold. I don't know how your translation reads. However, low or behold, behold is a little more, I mean, common, I mean, modern. You don't hear low. <laughs> low! The stove is on! Yeah, you don't really hear that. Uh, but, but you get the idea. Low or behold is, hey, wake up! Maybe I did just wake some of you up. Behold! I mean, this is, Jesus is talking, and anything he says is important. But when Jesus says, behold, it's really, really important. And it's so important because he knows the condition of his men. He knows the condition of his disciples. Praise God, Jesus knows we're not all that. He knows we're weak. He knows we're like Peter and can really blow it. He knows that we stumble and we falter. He knows that we're prone to the attacks of Satan, our enemy. The discouragement and temptation of this world. The assaults of the devil. And so our ultimate comfort, our ultimate encouragement, the, the strength and the ability for fulfilling the Great Commission is not found somehow within. We got this. We're going to do this. No. It's found in this promise. Jesus says, I behold, I am with you. Wow. That's quite a declaration about his person, who he is. He's claiming to be the very I am and is wonderfully fitting because Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, all the way back in the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, when the angels announced that Mary would become pregnant with the very incarnate Son of God, conceived in her womb of the Holy Spirit. We're told there in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it's a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I am with you. He is Emmanuel. And he is with us. Note the scope again, verse 20. Not most of the time. Not when things are going good. Not when I like you. (laughs) I am with you always. Always. Even to the end of the age. And in Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus had some amazing things to say about what his people would go through on their journey to the end of this age. Trials and tribulations and attacks and events of unfathomable difficulty. He promises to be with us through all of it. And that is our comfort, loved ones, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter what circumstances we are in, individually or together as a church, there's one thing that really matters at the end of the day. Is Jesus here? 
Is Jesus here? And if we are his people and if we have professed faith in him, he is. Because where his spirit is, there he is. Again, Jesus said in John 14, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. How does he do that? By his own spirit, who indwells believers. The fact that Jesus is with us is, in this context, comforting. It also should be a little unsettling. How I conduct myself, I always should conduct myself with the reality that Jesus is with me. We conduct ourselves as a church always in the view of the fact of the truth that Jesus is with us. When the teacher's in the room, the class acts a little differently. When the king is in the room, the church acts a little differently. The king is always in the room. It humbles us, it guards us, it keeps us, but most of all, Isn't it wonderful that in the very last words of this gospel, the words that Jesus is recorded as leaving his men with, we know they're not his last words to him, but for all the sorrows they would go through, all the difficulties they would go through, the persecutions, even from some of them crucifixion, all of them would be martyred, these apostles, that Jesus promises I am with you in every situation, every perplexity, every difficulty, every painful moment, every joyful moment, in your last dying breath, all the way. And he will be with his church all the way. He will never leave us or forsake us. He will be with us. The greatest gift, Christ with us by his spirit. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your Son. Our Father, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for our Lord. Lord Jesus, we recognize you this morning as our our beloved and righteous King. And gracious Spirit, how, how kind you are to show us Jesus. And we thank you, O God, we go back to square one, that you save sinners like us. And again, I pray in closing that if there's anyone here who has yet to trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of unbelief and trust in him for who he is, Lord and Savior, I pray that today will be the day. And for those of us here who have trusted in Christ at one point, help us today, O God, to recommit to our Lord that whatever he commands, we will listen and we will obey. If we've become hardened and calloused and crusty and rigid and are no longer pliable, moldable by your word and by your spirit, oh God, have mercy and do that work that only you can do of softening us up, tenderizing our hearts, giving us a fresh love and loyalty to our Lord Jesus. We pray this ultimately, Father, not merely for our own happiness that we know the way of following Christ ultimately is the way of life. But we ask it for your honor, Father, for your honor, Lord Jesus, and for your honor, gracious Spirit, who dwells within us. So we close our study of the Gospel of Matthew, O God, thanking you for this study of these past few years. 
what a journey you've brought us on, how precious it it has been to spend such time with Jesus. And we are comforted that even as we leave our study of the Gospel of Matthew, that Jesus, you're not leaving us. How can we thank you that you're with us and for this covenant promise that you will never leave us? We rejoice in that truth today. And we want you to know, Lord Jesus, we want you to be here. We want you to be pleased in our presence. We want to bring you joy. We love you because of your great love towards us. In your name we thank you. Amen.